Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, A Mission for Ministry, with a message entitled, Rooted in the One True Faith. So turn your Bibles to Jude chapter 3 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Chuck Colson once told the story of the first Nazi bombings of London. In an act of defiance, the British papers led with the headline, And If Not. They were quoting from the first three words of Daniel 3.18. The context of that quote is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been ordered to fall down and worship before an idolatrous statue that stood about 90 feet high. It was ominous and imposing, but still the three Hebrew young men would not bow. At that time, they were threatened that if they would not bow, they'd be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire, to which Daniel 3.17 records their response to the king. They say, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And then the three words the British papers were quoting begins with the very next verse. The three Hebrews say, And if not, and if not, And if not, what? Well, they say, And if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. That is to say, even if God, in his loving providential care, determines that we should meet our end in that furnace, that still would not dissuade us from serving your gods. And of course, the application the British papers were making was that the same could be said of the Nazi bombers flying over London in the 1930s. They were saying, our God is able to deliver us from such evil, and if not, if in his providential care he determines that the bombers should flatten our cities and lay waste to our nation, even if that should occur, we will never bow down before the Nazi flag, nor will we ever serve such an evil tyranny. As Churchill would say, we will never surrender. Even though it costs us every last person in this nation, we will never surrender. And that's the story of an act of incredible national courage at a time of great moral darkness. But I relay that story not to tell the story of the drama of the Second World War, but to bring attention to another point. The British papers at the time were confident that all they had to do was print the first three words of Daniel 3.18 and all of England would understand what it was referring to. That is to say, the British people were sufficiently biblically literate so that simply quoting three words would give them all the data they required to be strong in those dark days. See, from that thought, let me quote from Winston Churchill and what he said in the 1930s. He said, one of the signs of a great society is the diligence with which it passes culture from one generation to the next. When one generation no longer passes on the things that are dear to it, its heroes and their stories and its religious faith. It is in effect saying that the past is null and void. It is of no value. That leaves young people feeling a lack of direction and a lack of purpose and opens them to the dictum of Karl Marx that a people deprived of their history are easily persuaded and might I add easily defeated. Let's say it again. A people deprived of their history are easily persuaded. See, in our society, that's already happened. Past leaders of our civilization are characterized in the worst possible manner and they're canceled 
and the biblical underpinnings of our society has been effectively erased from all the history books, and all we're left with is to repeat the mantras of the current collective ideology. Our history has been removed, and we're easily persuaded. And anyone who responds by saying, I'm not going to bow before the statue of postmodern thinking is thrown into the fiery furnace. But look, I don't wish to give an analysis of our culture. Rather, over these two weeks, I've wanted to give a vision for Back to the Bible Canada and why it is that we do what we do. I've been talking about our understanding of the scripture and of our approach to interpreting it so that when you listen, you'll have a clear perspective of what we're trying to accomplish. Today, I want to talk about our commitment to the faith. I'm here specifically referring to the words that come from Jude 3. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You'll notice that Jude says that there is a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's to say, the faith is not a progressive set of beliefs that's constantly changing and is in flux according to the tastes of the current generation. Rather, there is something that Jude calls the faith. That is, there is a corpus of Christian truth that never changes, always remains the same. Paul thought of it in that way. You might remember his charge to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verses 26 and 27. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And when he speaks of the whole counsel of God, he is like Jude, referring to a core of Christian teaching. In Paul's case, he says, Had I failed to teach this, and had I failed to fully instruct you in this, I would be guilty of your blood. Well, how so? Well, Paul's convinced that unless a people knows the core truths of the Christian faith and believes them and incorporates them into their lives, they're not going to go to heaven. They're going to stand and be judged before God. That is to say, if in the future those truths are changed or subverted or simply neglected, people will go into Christless eternities. And so, just like Jude, Paul was prepared to fight and battle at every level to make sure those truths would continue to be taught. What truths are we talking about? Well, for starters, we might look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. There are a number of items that are important, but of first importance is the content of the good news, the saving news of Jesus. Christ died for our sins. It means what theologians have called the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. That is, Christ on the cross was substituted for us. He bore the penalty of our sins on the cross. Paul says that was a primary importance. Everything else he taught flowed from that. But let's get back now to what Paul said in Acts 20 when he was speaking to the Ephesian elders. Paul said, had I not emphasized the one truth, I would be guilty of your blood. You'd pay for your sins. And so Paul was very careful not to neglect the core of Christian teaching, making sure it was properly taught and understood and was presented in a persuasive fashion. So let's get back to Jude. Jude speaks of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In essence, that's what we have in our Bible. The Bible is the content of our faith. 
But as I've made plain in this short two-week explanation of the philosophy of our ministry, we can't just say we believe the Bible. We have to interpret the Bible rightly, and in so doing, we have to emphasize those things that are central to our faith, that Jesus is Lord, that his cross provides atonement for all who repent of their sins and put their faith in him. We need to emphasize that God is holy, that he's righteous, and that sins can't be forgiven without the shedding of blood. We need to talk also about the Holy Spirit. And says Jude, not only do we need to teach these things, but we also need to contend for them. That is, we have to fight for them. Jude anticipates that during his time and in the future, there's going to be fierce battles for these very truths. And champions need to arise, champions who have the courage not to fall away in the day of battle. There's going to be a great battle that has to be assumed. Listen to Paul's last words to Timothy. He knows he's about to die. He's passing the baton on to the next generation. 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 to 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, in a sense, that has been the long history of the Christian church. It's been a constant fight for truth. Yet in our day, we see those who want a liberalized faith, a faith that evolves to suit the thinking of our day, a faith that's progressive, as they say. But isn't that the fight we're engaged in? It says, Paul, since time will come when people will war against the faith once for all delivered to the saints, what are we to do? Well, the answer is simple. We must preach the word, regardless of the season we're in. Yet today, we're not like the days of Great Britain at the time of the Nazi bombings, when but three words from the Bible would remind everyone in the nation what the Bible had said. We are in a day, even within the church today, when there has been a great neglect of the Bible. That's the season we're in. But Paul's words remain relevant. He says, don't stop preaching the word. Whether on radio, online, in print, podcast, or YouTube, God continues to use this ministry to guide people back to the Bible and to encourage and equip them to search more deeply into Scripture. One listener wrote to say, God used your radio ministry to lead me to saving faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God, still learning and growing daily. Another wrote, I have just recently found Jesus and I'm grateful to be able to listen to your program while I'm at work. I have learned so much and you help bring me closer to God. You know, we recognize that this ministry could not be sustained without like-hearted, like-minded partners in mission right across Canada. Thank you for your prayers and support. And if you'd like to know more or make a gift toward our fiscal year-end campaign, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. In the first five centuries of the church, there has been an attempt to list the primary beliefs of the Bible. You know, if you come from an evangelical church in certain traditions, you might well have experienced a repetition of the Apostles' Creed. If you don't know it, here it goes. 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, what's the history of that creed? You know, there's a story that says that this creed was written by the apostles before they went their own separate ways to declare the gospel to the world. And they decided that these were the things that they would teach. But I think now it's been adequately shown that's actually a legend. It wasn't written by the apostles at all. Well, if not, does that creed have any worth? Yes, it does. First of all, the creed seems to emerge from somewhere in the second century. But what is meant by the Apostles' Creed if the Apostles didn't write it? Well, the creed actually expresses accurately the teachings of the Apostles. And furthermore, since that time, it's been widely used to summarize what we believe, so much so that today it's one of those creeds that actually unites every true Christian. Yet we say it's an accurate summary of the New Testament. Notice the creed mentions the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Notice it mentions creation, the virgin birth, the coming of Christ, his crucifixion on the cross, his rising from the dead, who Christians are, what it means to have the Holy Spirit, and what's our ultimate hope. I know that since the time of the formulation of that creed, there have been false teachers who have appeared to have believed everything that's written in there and yet have still been false teachers. And so more needed to be said. I've mentioned in this series that one of the great controversies that racked the church was over the nature of Jesus. I've already made the point that this Arian view of Jesus, if it had been adopted, it would have destroyed the doctrine of salvation and crippled the church. And so in the year 325, a second great creed, it was called the Nicene Creed, which among other things had this statement, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And they were saying there's a vast difference between a Jesus who was made and a Jesus who was begotten. If Jesus was begotten of the Father, they said, well then, he shares the substance and the essence of the Father. Let me put it into a way that's quite practical. I and my wife have a begotten son. He's a human being. We're human beings. He's one among many, just as we are. He's finite, and he has a point of beginning and a point of end, even as we are. He shares fully in our humanity. That's what it means to be begotten. If the Father begets a son, the Son must share fully in the substance and the essence of the Father. The Father is from everlasting to everlasting. That is, he has no beginning and no ending. And so if the Son shares in his essence, that must also be true of the Son. Since God is one, there's none besides him. The Son shares fully in that. He is the one true God. That was stated in addition to the Apostles' Creed simply because of a heresy that was sweeping through the church. It needed to be said in a way that trained a next generation of Bible teachers that this kind of heresy, that the heresy of Arius, would never be allowed to raise its head again. And then in the first five centuries of the church, 
two more important creeds were written. One is the Chalcedonian Creed in 451, which made clear that Jesus the Son could have both a fully human nature as well as a fully divine nature. That when Jesus became a man, he didn't stop being God just because he became a man. It also needed to be said lest the true gospel would be lost. After all, there were all manner of false teachers who were arguing that Jesus only appeared to be a man. But the true believers always understood that wasn't what the Bible taught. They also knew that to deny Jesus full humanity was also to deny that he could be tempted as we are and yet be without sin. And that when he died on the cross, he would experience the cross in the way that a man would experience it. And yet all the while, he continued to remain fully God. See, the final creed of the first five centuries was then called the Athanasian Creed. In many ways, nothing new was added here, but the creed does say that the one true universal faith is this. We worship one God in Trinity, not confounding or confusing the roles played by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but also affirming that the three persons are the one God. That creed went on to say, this is the universal faith, which except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. So for many of us, we like to say that we believe in one true gospel revealed in two testaments, declaring the three persons who are the one God as affirmed by the four great creeds over the first five centuries. One, two, three, four, five. Now, I know that there are many of us who've been trained to say, I'm not a creedal Christian. I'm a biblical Christian. I hold only to the truths of the Bible. I don't need those creeds. Let me get back to a quote from Winston Churchill, who quoted from Karl Marx. A people deprived of their history is easily persuaded. You see, many of us misunderstand the history of those four creeds. Those creeds aren't meant to replace the Bible. Only the Bible, not the creeds, are the Word of God. Only the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We hold sola scriptura, the Bible alone. But if we don't remember the battles we fought against heresy in the past, we're going to quickly fall into those heresies again. Marx was right. Deny a people of their history, and you can lead them astray with ease. And if you deny the history of the faithful who have fought, contended for the one true faith, if we allow names like Athanasius and the battles he fought to protect the one true faith, and if we forget how he suffered in order to fight the true fight, if our history of contending for the faith is lost, we're going to become suckers for the same heresies to rise again. But someone's going to object. Well, didn't the Roman Catholic Church introduce many unbiblical doctrines through the use of creeds? And the answer is yes, they did. In time, creeds would become a tool that false teachers themselves would use to gain power over others. That is what history has also taught us. But the Reformers saw that when they said sola scriptura. You see, they knew that scriptures alone were the final guide. If you can't prove your creed by reading the Bible in its plain sense, then the creed means nothing. If we simply proclaim creeds, then faithful Christians will respond, we protest. That's also a part of our history. That's why we said the truth of scriptures is worth more than the unity of the church. So then why have I told about these four creeds? I said it because they reflect the history of biblical Christians contending for the one true faith once for all delivered to the saints. I said it because I don't think that every generation of Christians has to act as if we have no idea of history. 
I've said it so that we won't think that we here at Back to the Bible Canada will suddenly come up with novel doctrines in keeping with what we simply believe. You see, we're biblical in that we believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God, holy without error, infallible in its original writings. We also know that it's necessary for us to handle the Word of God rightly. But we're also confessional. We know that God has been safeguarding His truth over the generations. The Christian faith is not a progressive faith. Rather, it is what Paul wrote to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6 verse 20 says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. That is, God has deposited to the leaders of every generation the truths of the one true faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Our job is not to innovate. Our job is also not to protect the traditions that have grown around us in the last several hundred years. Not that. Our job is to go back to the revelation of the Word of God and see it as the most precious thing we possess. And then with all the intellectual vigor we have, with all the power the Holy Spirit has given us, and with the new nature that has been infused into us, standing in the line with men and women who have defended and preached the Word in the past, we now say it's our day to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to us. It's our mission here at Back to the Bible Canada. We're guarding the deposit by teaching the Bible. Thanks, John. Uh, Let me ask you, you know, there are those who would say we have no creed but the Bible. How would you respond to that? You know, I I have heard that said, and uh, what happens when we do that is that we seem to belie where the Bible leads us. When we say we have no creed, what are we actually saying? You know, for instance, uh, monotheism is what the Bible teaches. So we set out creeds which say there is only one God. So why would that be a problem to say that? provided that our statements of faith and our creeds state exactly what the Bible teaches and states it explicitly, uh, we should have as many as we can of that kind of a thing. Uh, However, those who often say, I have no creed of the Bible, often allow themselves to be led astray by unbiblical teaching uh, and uh, simply aren't paying attention. So, I I just don't uh, hold to that. I think it's, it's naive to have that kind of a viewpoint. Uh, Creeds also help us to identify heresies and errors, and so we are able to take action. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Mission for Ministry, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. June is one of the most significant months of the year financially for the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Like every family, individual, and organization across the country, we've had to adjust our expenses this past year. But despite the challenges and because of your consistent support, we continue to be committed to making all of our Bible teaching programming and resources available without interruption. To help maintain this commitment, a group of generous ministry supporters who share our heart for Bible teaching have offered to double your gifts this month. The June ministry target for our fiscal year end is $325,000. Would you help to provide a financial gift towards that goal? Remember, every dollar you give will be matched up to $75,000 
so your gift has doubled the impact. To make your fiscal year-end gift today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.